0: Well, I started a series that I want to finish today on the uh, gospel, not the gospel, but the epistle of John. First John, not the gospel of John, but first, second, and third John near the end of your New Testament. And I thought we've had three or four inspiring sermons in a row. Uh, I gave a rather strong sermon about three weeks ago, and then we heard a very fine sermon from Mr. Hull, and then a very fine, inspiring sermon encouraging, I think, from Mr. Tyler last week. So I thought the best thing now would be to get back to a teaching sermon and uh, this particular week and finish this series. And I went through 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3 a few weeks ago. And I'd like to wind up with that today. So you really understand this book. And frankly, it is one of my favorite books in the Bible. As I told you back there, I want to review a tiny bit. But uh, John was Jesus, the disciple Jesus loved and I think most of you know that. He was Jesus' special friend and the disciple Jesus loved. John outlived all the other apostles and apparently died a natural death, maybe around 100 years old. All the other apostles, so far as we know, were martyred. The Bible indicates that and uh, history indicates that as far as church tradition is concerned. It's interesting, too, that the Protestants particularly take the view that there's progressive revelation. They think that in the Old Testament they didn't understand very much. And then that somehow Jesus came along and he and added to that and they understood more. But then what they try to come up with with their idea of progressive revelation is that then the Apostle Paul went beyond Jesus and revealed even more. And he got us under grace, you see. Now we're under grace according to them. And we don't have to keep God's law. I think most of you know that. That's what they teach. And those few denominations who do say that we should keep the Ten Commandments uh, always find some way to get around the Fourth Commandment. They either say that it was nailed to the cross and the others were brought back or that it is applied to Sunday now. And, of course, uh, every honest uh, Protestant and Catholic scholar knows better than that. The Sabbath was the seventh day. But they find a way somehow to get away with keeping the Fourth Commandment and jerking it right out of the middle of the commandments and then when they do that, wittingly or unwittingly, probably unwittingly to most of them, but they always end up watering down the other commandments. They'll divorce and remarry for almost any reason, not the biblical reasons, and they will often go to war and fight and kill, and they will break many, many of the other commandments. They just do that because once you do away with the fourth commandment and the fear of God and that knowledge of the Creator God, somehow the rest of it just falls with the wayside. I think most of you know that, of course, because most of you grew up in Protestant churches and you saw what happened, just as I did. But anyway, John is writing, and he wrote last of all, and yet he talks about God's law continually through here, and shows we'd better keep the law of God. A very important part of God's way of life, and he shows how important it is to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ as well. But you can't have, cannot have a personal relation with Christ Unless you have Christ living in you, Christ living in you, the same obedient life He did live 1,900 years ago. And that was an obedient life, obeying God's law. So you need to understand that part as well. Notice 1 John now, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He then describes how he'd seen and heard, and they knew God. They didn't have to have anyone tell them that Christ was not a real person. They'd been with him. They saw him. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So our fellowship is with one another to the extent that we have God in us and Christ in us. Our fellowship is that way. And God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, all of us have elements of darkness in us. We are not perfect yet. We have to grow in grace and in knowledge. But as we walk in the light ever more perfectly, as we yield to Christ, of course, then we honor God, because Christ is more fully manifested in us bit by bit, year by year, as we grow in grace and in knowledge. He says then in chapter 2, verse 3, Now, by this we know that we know Him... We know God. How do we know God? You know, you read Billy Graham's column, and he says, Just invite Christ into your life. I've heard him say that. I read him say that. I'm, be, I'm beginning to read his column every every day now that I'm back here, and it's published. Just invite Christ into your life. Very seldom does he talk about repentance. Very seldom does he talk about burying your old self, utterly surrendering to God and to God rule your life. You just invite Christ in your life. Believe on Christ or whatever Here is the way we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. That's very clear and that's very strong. That sounds insulting to some people if they would have, if I would just say it myself. But here's the Apostle John saying it, the Apostle of love, because this is what love is, obeying God's law. So he says, he's a liar who says he knows God but does not keep the commandments. He he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word were to live by every single word of God the best we can with God's Spirit in us. We don't do it perfectly all at once, but we grow and grow in grace and in knowledge. Whoever keeps his word, the love of God is perfected in him. Verse 9 or verse 8, looking here, verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk just as he walked, or to walk as Christ walked. And as you know, my favorite scripture, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's what a true Christian is. To the degree that Christ lives in you, to the degree that you surrender to God, to the degree that you repent of your sins as you learn about them, and you grow in grace and in knowledge and overcome to that degree, Christ is living in you and you're a Christian. And of course, you're to become ever more like Christ. Brethren, verse 7, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. He keeps going back to the beginning. And the beginning... He's talking about, when you understand and look up references, I won't try to sidetrack too much or I may not get to the end of this stuff, but it's, it's, it could be the beginning of going clear back to Moses or back to Abraham, but frankly the beginning is indicated as, as Christ himself, the beginning of the gospel. So he's talking about what Christ said. He says, from the beginning, the old commandment is the word, you see, Christ's word, he was the word, which you heard from the beginning. And what did Christ teach them from the beginning? If you would enter into life, keep the commandments, plural. That's, of course, Matthew 19, verse 17, which is famous and well-known to most of you, I hope. Again, a new commandment. Did Christ do away with the old commandment? Did John, in this progressive revelation, no? He simply makes them all the more binding. A new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. He says, He who is, says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So you're not to hate your brother. He begins to magnify the law just as Jesus did and shows we're to love one another, we're to constantly forgive one another, get over our hurts, get over our wrong feelings, our wrong attitudes, and love one another. He says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Certainly we can enjoy the beautiful days and the beautiful mountains and valleys and rivers and oceans that God has created. But the world here is cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, the society. If you love this world's movies, love this world's television, love this world's computer games and the filth and the vile stuff that often comes over the Internet and love this society and its ways and you pour that into your mind, that, of course, is directly drinking in of Satan the devil you'll end up with Satan's rebellious attitude. You can't help it. It just comes pouring into your mind. It affects the way you think, the way you act, the way you do in every way. So you cannot have the love of God and do that because that is the lust of the world, the pride of life, and so on, as he goes on to explain. He shows here, verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. They had the Gnostics back at that time, coming from the Greek word gnosis or knowledge, and they were trying to say that there was duality and Christ was kind of a phantom he was not a real person they had all kinds of different ideas and Paul and John is also refuting that teaching all the way through here showing Christ is a real person and to really know Christ and know God you've got to walk that way you've got to live that way and keep his commandments and so he says in verse or chapter 3 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And we know, brethren, we are now children of God. We're not yet born of God, but we are if we're converted, if we're baptized, if we have God's Spirit in us, we are begotten of God. We have part of our Father's very nature inside of us. So we are now children of God, and it does not yet been revealed what we shall be, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We're going to be like God or like Christ in this instance he's talking about. For we shall see him as he is. Well, it could actually refer to either the father or the son here. And often, as the commentaries point out, when he says him, him through here, it's hard to tell. As a couple of the very top commentaries point out, it's hard to tell for them, although they're carnal, but they often don't have a problem with this kind of thing. It's hard to tell, does it mean the Father or the Son? Because as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so really, they often talk about it it just means God. God the Father, God the Son, you know, because Jesus is is God, of course. So uh, anyway, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We shall see God as he is, and we shall see Christ as he is in full glory. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have the hope and the understanding that you will be a full child of God someday, born of God, composed of the Holy Spirit, your face shining like the sun, that will be a tremendous motivation for you to grow, to overcome, to study this book, to feed on it to pray to God on your knees every day of your life, to meditate, to fast, and to walk with God. You'll have a purpose in doing that because you want to fulfill the purpose of the God who gives you life and breath. You want to honor that God. As Mr. Pearson said in the sermonette, we have so much to be thankful for. God has blessed this nation, not because of our goodness at all, but because of his promise to Abraham He has been very good to us, and we still have tremendous wealth and power and beauty and everything in this nation, and yet we in God's church are called out to be a special people of God, and we can have a great deal of gratitude that we have that opportunity. God calls the weak of the world. We're told that a number of times. So we look around, we say, how could we be God's special nation? Well, because of God's mercy. God does not start at the top. I've kidded some of my Jewish friends because the Jews have tended to be the most brilliant single ethnic group on the earth, frankly, when you understand it. Most of the top atomic scientists and hydrogen bomb scientists and doctors and musicians and at one point a few years ago, if you named the top five violinists on the earth, they were all Jews. If you named the top pianists on earth, they were all Jews. And if you named the top maybe 50 scientists on earth, probably half of them would be Jews. And yet only maybe 2 or 3% of the Earth's population is Jewish or less. Way out of their number. The word Judah means literally praise. God gave those people that kind of ability. And they can use it for good or for ill. Sigmund Freud was a Jew. He introduced the whole field of psychoanalysis. He used it the wrong way, of course. He thought everything was connected with sex. And of course a lot of people, a lot of Jews, Karl Marx introduced communism. He was another Jew. And yet you, and of course Einstein was called the man of the century now. Well, it used to be Winston Churchill, but now they've come to Einstein because they called it the century of science. And he was a Jew, the father of all of this stuff. And so you go. But, I kid my Jewish friends, and I've had several that I love very much. God doesn't usually start at the bottom, He, at the top. I mean, he starts at the bottom and works up. So he doesn't start out with the Einsteins and the Bernsteins and all the other Steins. You know what I mean? And so it is with us. God has to show his power in us, weak as we may be, to make us his children. And so he goes on to show then that we can have this glory and want to be pure because we have this purpose in mind. Verse 4, he who commits sin commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, or as the King James says, sin is. And brethren, this is the only place I know of in the Bible that directly says that. The King James has it worded, as you know, the old King James. Sin is the transgression of the law. And certainly the law he's talking about throughout this book is the spiritual law of God. He's not talking in this book at all about the ritual law, the sacrificial law, or the statutes and judgments, but the spiritual law of God. That's very obvious. The references he makes to adultery, murder, hate, all those things. It's the spiritual law of God. When you break that law, that's what sin is. And if the world could just get that one thing straight in their minds, what a blessing that would be. But Satan has blinded their minds, and they don't understand. Sin is not drinking, uh, you know, a glass of wine. Sin is, of course, breaking God's law by drinking too much or letting uh, that bottle become your God. Sin is not going to a movie. But if the movie is filled with violence and filth, and it causes you to think wrong thoughts and develop wrong habits. Yet that would be sin, if you keep on watching that kind of a movie or television show or whatever. But the thing itself is not sin, as Mr. Armstrong used to explain. It's the wrong use of a thing that breaks God's law. Sin is the transgression of the Ten Commandments. So we have to really understand that as a church. And I hope all our brethren, you brethren around the world who may watch this later, please understand that most churches on this world do not understand that at all. The Catholics think sin is all kinds of different things. It used to be eating meat on Friday. You're supposed to just eat fish on Friday or whatever. And then they've had various laws in various churches, you know, of the world that are not based on the Ten Commandments principle at all. They don't understand. God has blinded them. Going on, verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Christ did not have sin. Whoever abides in him, if you abide in Christ, uh, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And as I explained last time, I want to review this briefly before we go on. The Greek uh, uh, gender here, the Greek uh, 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 is always progressive. It's always practice, active uh, tense, you might say. It means practices. He who practices sin, not he who sins... But he who practices sin does not know God, has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, and he literally spells it out this way, and it's worded this way in the next verse, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, in the New King James, the translators literally put it in. But it's implied, the way it's worded, all the way through this passage. Absolutely. All the way through, he who practices sin, he who practices righteousness, you see, is a way of life. That's what it's talking about. So he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. But he who sins, verse 8, in other words, he who practices sin, he who regularly sins is of the devil. Now, I sin once in a while. My wife knows my faults. I might lose my temper or say something bad or say, kidding, let's say I kicked the cat and slammed the door. Well, we don't have a cat, but you know what I mean. I have human nature that shows itself. But God willing, I don't practice sin as a way of life. I don't regularly hate or lust or kill, certainly, or never killed anyone or commit adultery. I've never done that or those type of things. That's not my practice. That's not my way of life, period. It's not the way of life of most of you either, or you would not be here. I know that. But let's understand that. He who practices sin, you see, that's the whole thing, is of the devil. For the devil sinned or practiced sin. It was his way of life from the beginning. The time he began to rebel against God, he became the adversary. And then he regularly had the attitude of of what? Competition and greed and hate and rebellion. That was his attitude the minute he became Satan the devil. Verse 9. Whoever has been born, and brethren, again, as I explained, to review with you, and I'll take some time. I hope I don't make too late here, but it's so important you understand this one word as well as 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. You also need to understand the word born, which is often and should be translated begotten. And the King James translation Often has it begotten the new King James, often the Jerusalem Bible or some of the other translations will have the same word translated begotten, or the new international version will sometimes have it translated begotten, where the King James will have the same word translated born. How can they do that? Well, because there's no way of knowing it just means engendering it could mean that you're you're begotten, you're not yet born, or it could mean born this Greek word is susceptible, as they use the term, to either interpretation. It's not set in stone. You have to understand it by the context, by the verses around it. What's it talking about? Does it mean you're born, you're already fully God? You're already fully a spirit being? In that case, you're born of God. But if you're not yet fully God, you're not fully a spirit being. Jesus said that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You know, back in John chapter 3, you know, and uh, the Spirit like is like the wind. It comes, appears for a little while and then goes away and you don't see where it comes from or where it goes. So is he who is born of the Spirit, Jesus said. We're not yet born of the Spirit. I can see you, you can see me, we know where we come from. We are not yet composed of Spirit. We are begotten of God, not yet born. So that's the way this should be translated here. Whoever, and I'm mentioning this as new truth. We did not used to understand this 20 or 30 years ago, but we have come to understand it. It's very clear in the context. Read it. Whoever has been begotten of God does not what? Practice sin. That's what it's talking about. The same thing. Whoever has been begotten of God does not practice sin as a way of life. For why? His seed And the Greek word is sperm, just like a male sperm impregnates the female egg. That's what it's talking about. God is not embarrassed about it. He made it. The sperm, God's very seed, remains in that converted individual. If you have God's Spirit, you have the seed of God, the very nature of God. His seed remains in such a Christian. And he cannot sin, that is, he cannot practice sin as a way of life, Uh, because he's been begotten of God. In this, notice verse 10 helps explain verse 9 in the context. In this, John continues, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So he's not talking about the fact when you're actually spirit beings. That'll be very clear at that time, you see. But it's not clear yet in this life except by this this fact. The ones who regularly sin are not children of God. That's very clear. If they don't keep the Sabbath ever and they regularly lie or cheat or exaggerate or go live wrong ways of life, it's very obvious they're not children of God. They may be good people in general. Mother Teresa was a good person in general, but she did not understand God. God had not called her yet. And other Protestant ministers and Catholic popes, some of them have been good people. I suppose the present pope is a good man. Yet many of the Catholic popes were absolutely scoundrels. And Catholic historians acknowledge that. Uh, pope uh, Rodrigo, the, Rod, Rodrigo the Sixth, he was my ancestor, <laughs> had a similar name. Alexander the Sixth, I guess, uh, but whatever his name was. Anyway, he uh, he had uh, thirty, what is it, thirty-five wives and fifty concubines or something, and bastard children all over Europe. The one infallible pope who was celibate, you know what I mean. You read about him regularly. Lots of those popes were like that. I don't mean two or three. I mean many, many of them. Probably a dozen or two dozen of them. At one time, they had three different popes, each excommunicating one another. The Catholic histories don't like to stress those things, but they are histories nevertheless. So you have to understand that, of course. The key is who is having God's Spirit in him. Who is Christ living in him through the Spirit? In this, the children of God, the ones who are truly converted, and the children of the devil are manifest. You see, in this life, we can figure that out. Whoever does not practice, and that's the way it's worded here in the New King James. It's written here. I didn't put it there. This is the way they translate it, these top translators. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Some of these Protestant ministers are nice guys, but do they regularly practice keeping the Ten Commandments? Do they always teach against killing even in time of war? Do they do away with a lot of the other wrong things the society does? No, they're part of the society. They may be nice guys on the surface, very friendly, but they're blinded. Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they will fall in the ditch together. And you have to understand that. Lots of nice guys. You say, well, they're nice. That must mean they're converted. No. I've had Dr. Hay in the past, whom I love still, know, knew very, very well. Mr. John Halford, who I knew very well, spent much time in the Orient, back in the Worldwide Church of God, working with our program in Thailand, they have both told me that some of the Thai people, not just the priests, but many of those people are so gentle and so kind and so loving that they outdo most of our people just in the way they just are gentle and kind and bow to each other. But in time of war or religious upset, long knives come out. And they literally chop each other to bits with great long knives and the blood is pouring all over the room. In person, they kill each other. Where is the love there? Well, uh, you know, things happen. <laughs> they don't have God's spirit. They do not have God's spirit. They have not accepted Jesus Christ in any way whatsoever. They don't understand. But they, on the surface, they can be very kind and bow to each other and be very sweet. That does not prove anything. Because God knows in a weak moment, people in all these different groups will snap like Satan snapped. And they will disobey God and they will fight God. And God cannot give them glory and power and majesty and a spiritual body of tremendous power that will live forever. Otherwise, they might destroy part of the whole universe. He can't bring them into his family like that. They've got to totally surrender to the God of the Bible to the God and Father of Jesus Christ, and have Christ living in them all the time regularly. Not perfectly, but regularly. So we and they, any true Christian, will regularly keep the Sabbath, regularly love God, regularly try to help one another, regularly keep the commandments, slipping a little bit here and there, but not some massive way to pull out long knives and kill each other. If you follow me? No, we won't be doing that. The church of God has never done that. So whoever does not practice righteousness as a way of life is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. See, he goes back to the beginning. And really it's not Genesis, it's the gospel, it's Christ, that we should love one another. Certainly those things were intimated way back in the Old Testament, but they really begin in a big way under the teaching of Christ. For this is the message, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. You see, he was jealous, jealous of his brother. And so he got this terrible attitude of murder. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. Someone who has that attitude of loving, of serving, of forgiving... And that's one big thing you learn in marriage. You've got to give and you've got to forgive. My wife has forgiven me hundreds of times. And I have forgiven her hundreds of times. And each of us has to love and to serve and to forgive one another. Do we do that perfectly? No, but it's a wonderful institution. Like a, No, it's not like a jail. <laughs> you're, you're there, though. You learn. God puts you there and he tells you that you are to be here and you're to make it stick. You're to make it work. And you're to love and give and serve in all your life. You learn that thing of loving, of giving, and forgiving and sharing with one another. And that's a wonderful thing we should learn in marriage and certainly in all of our relationships. But marriage is a good uh, schoolmaster, so to speak, to help us learn that. So we've got to love one another. Uh, let's go on. Verse 13, He, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murder has eternal life abiding in him. Well, brethren, a lot of the Protestant and Catholic world says you are an immortal soul, or you have an immortal soul. The Bible doesn't say that. If you're an immortal soul, how how, how could you die, you see? He says no murder has eternal life abiding in him. So you're not an immortal soul. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is a very beautiful verse. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Son. First John 3.16, interesting parallelism. Uh, he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Kind of a parallelism there. As God gave his son, and as Christ gave his life, so we ought to love one another and try to honestly lay down our lives for one another. And we ought to think that way. As I get older, I have less energy, so I try to get uh, enough exercise to feel good, but I'm not trying to be Mr. America. It's not going to work anyway. (laughs) But if I can get enough exercise and enough sleep to keep serving, and if my motive is trying to serve you brethren, and serve the world, and serve the work, and get the work done to that degree... And my motivation is oh, always perfect 100, all, every minute of every day. But that should be my main motivation, you see, for whatever I do. To eat, drink, sleep. Not just so I can look good or be Mr. America or do this or that. But to serve others, to do the work, to honor God. And I think all of you are beginning to think that way more. As you're in the church more, as you grow more, you feel that way. Our life is not worth much. We're not here very long. Our life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. In this life, we got to learn to give, to help, to serve. And if we do that, to love and worship God, to love and serve one another, then we will have the opportunity to help and love and serve one another and billions of other people in our family, you know, in God's family, forever. Because we will be the kind of people that would be happy doing that in a spirit world. But whoever sees has this world's goods... You have a lot of money or a lot of stuff and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? So we are to try to serve others. We're to try to help those who are poor, less fortunate. And of course, he says, your brother, everybody's your brother but we know that even Jesus and Paul's example and the others it Jesus didn't say go down here and go down there you know i remember when i was in the methodist church i used to put one nickel in the uh in the uh, missionary part of this envelope you know for the starving chinese and the other part for the local church well of course the starving chinese were not starving most of them and they went communist and it didn't do any good at all because they weren't taught the truth anyway uh, the best way you can help others is to give them the truth. Most of you know that. Yet if there's an immediate neighbor or someone in the church who can help, yes, you can help them physically. But as I pointed out, we could take every single solitary dime, and I mean that, that comes into this work, and dump it in India or China, and it would be gone in two or three days, probably two or three hours. And it wouldn't change their lives, because they would go right back to worshiping Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, you know, or Buddha, or whatever, and their way of life would still be a mess. But help people in the way you know will really help them. And, of course, sometimes for those right close by who have a purpose in life, you can prime the pump by giving them something and helping them physically and certainly help them get the truth of God. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we're to help others as best we can. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemn us, if you're sincerely trying, and yet you know you're human, which we all do, we're making mistakes, you know, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He's the Father of mercies. That's one of His titles. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. If we know that we're basically obeying God, we're trying our best, as we say, none of us go 100%, but we're, you know, we're wholehearted, and we know that, we know God knows that, then we have greater faith, don't we? We have greater confidence. We're doing our best overall. We're walking with God. We have confidence toward God. And then in that attitude, verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Here's how our prayers are answered. Why? Why? Because we're under grace and not under law? No. We are under grace. That's true. That is, our past sins are forgiven. Our past sins are not forgiven, though, if we don't do what first? We have to repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 38. You have to repent and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior in faith. But you've got to repent and turn away from sin. You repent of sin. That's why your sins are forgiven. So then your prayers are heard because we keep his commandments. Plural. Who is the antecedent of his? Back up here. In, uh, in verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The reason I say this, some people try to say it's Christ's new commandments, you know what I mean, and not God's ten commandments. But I've explained to you and your brethren around the world, and again, the world doesn't understand this, who literally gave the ten commandments in person? Christ did. Christ was the God of the Old Testament. Of course, the commandments came from God the Father. He and Christ talked them over and, let's say, figured them out and designed us in a certain way and gave those laws for our good. They are one and have been one from eternity. But Christ is the personality who stood atop Mount Sinai and said, You know, I am the eternal, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. And he was speaking from the throne, in a sense, speaking for himself and the Father, representing both perfectly, that the commandments directly came from Christ. Nevertheless, they're from God. God is the lawgiver, uh, James 4:12. So it's God's commandments. So whatever we ask in prayer, we receive from him because we keep his commandments, plural. We're to keep all ten of them. He didn't say if you keep nine of them and then throw the fourth one out. He didn't say anything like that all the way through the New Testament. He never said anything like that remotely. So we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. What are those things that are pleasing in his sight? Well, obviously, we should give up drinking too much. If we drink too much alcohol, we should give up smoking, which damages the temple of the Holy Spirit. We should give up watching too much television playing wild, violent computer games that fill our mind with rottenness and rebellion and filth and perverted attitude towards society. We should repent of all kinds of things. Some wealthy businessmen have got to repent of always, you know, putting their job first, their business first, and their God's relationship with God second. Some women put their house first or their family first ahead of God. This is very normal. We worship things like that, a lot of us, without realizing it. God comes first. For all of us, we can have other gods of various kinds, but we've got to do those things that are pleasing in His sight. That would include not eating unclean meats, too, and other things of that sort. And this is His commandment, singular, one special commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And brethren, He's talking about the true Jesus Christ of the Bible Again, a lot of people just read a verse like that every now and then, throw all the rest of it in the garbage can and say you don't have to keep the commandments, plural. What does it mean, believe on the name? The word name throughout the New Testament, and there are many references if you read them in Bible commentaries, Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias that show the way the word name was used in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, both of them. It meant the man's or the woman's character character, Their stature, their title, their personality, everything they stood for. It means authority, too. And the authority of Jesus Christ. You've got to believe in everything Christ stood for and in His authority. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of Him. You know, Paul said, or Peter said, casting out demons. That meant the authority of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ, the office of Jesus Christ. So, yes, you better believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. Back, if you're taking notes, write it down back in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, in verse 4. If he who comes preaches another Jesus, another gospel, has another spirit, you may well put up with it, the Apostle Paul said. There is another Jesus, and the world preaches another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. That's what you have to understand. So he's talking about believing on the true Jesus Christ. That means everything he stood for. And then you love one another as he gave his commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments, now he goes back plural again, all ten of them, abides in him. You abide in Christ and he in him. Christ lives in you. Galatians 2.20 Christ lives in me, Paul said. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He abides in us by the power or by the Spirit whom he's given us. So, brethren, these things are very important to understand. I want to read or get a little bit of this tea here before it gets cold. I appreciate it very much. It may have been Mrs. Nestor again, and whoever puts it up here. Anyway, it, they put it on a hot plate so it keeps it warm. Sometimes they used to wait a while to drink the tea and then it gets cold pretty quick and now they've even got hot tea. But I have to be careful because if I don't look where I'm putting it, then it trips right over. <laughs> I have a problem. Chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. There are different spirits coming around to give us ideas, you know, supposedly messages from God. Don't believe every spirit, but test. You've got to learn to test these ideas, these attitudes that come to you, these spirits or even ministers that teach things, whether they're of God. Why? Because many false prophets, and the word prophet and prophesy in the New Testament often means preacher or preaching. In fact, it usually does in the New Testament when you get the context. Don't believe every minister that comes along with different ideas, different attitudes, different approaches. Because many false prophets have come into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is the key, as you read my booklet on the Antichrist. That Christ has fully come in the flesh. Not just partly, but totally. And I'll go ahead with that as we go along. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that was coming and is now already in the world. Already preachers were coming along and saying, well, Christ was not fully in the flesh. He was just a disembodied spirit. He was a phantom who appeared briefly in the human body. And all these different concepts and ideas that they came up with called Gnosticism. Later on, the Catholics picked up the idea of dualism and so on. And a lot of the Protestants, without realizing it, had that attitude. And, of course, they don't fully realize or believe or follow through on the idea that Christ was fully in the human flesh. And if you read their commentaries and their theological books, which I have done, they don't fully understand that. They don't think that Christ was really tempted like as we are, fully in the human flesh and yet without sin. Most of them, because they have this different idea. So, as you know, the Catholics think the Virgin Mary, who was not a virgin, she went on to have several other children, but they think that she was had an immaculate conception. People think that's Christ. No, it's Mary. They think Mary herself was born without sin. That is, Mary did not even have any human nature. Therefore, God passed on His perfect nature to Christ, and Mary had perfect nature, so she became the mother of God in that sense. And uh, that's not true, of course, at all. But at any rate, they have these wrong ideas. And as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, if you want to turn back there just quickly for some references, turn back to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 2, and you'll notice what it says here in verse 17. Therefore in all things Christ had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself suffered, Christ suffered, he had to cry out to God for help, being tempted. Yes, he had the pulls of the flesh. Father, help me! He cried out with great tears rolling down his face. Being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. As yes, he was not some disembodied spirit and was not really tempted, he was. Chapter four, Hebrews four, and notice verse uh, fourteen: Seeing then that we have a great High Priest passed through the heavens, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ understands when we're under test, brethren. He understands. He was there, but was in all points. He had every pull in the flesh that we have. Jesus of Nazareth did in the human flesh. Every pulls toward breaking every one of God's commandments. He's talking no doubt about the points of God's commandments. He was tempted to commit idolatry, he was tempted to commit adultery, he was tempted to kill all kinds. It didn't mean he let the thing roll around in his mind. He did not entertain the temptation. Now, that's a different matter. But the temptation came to him. The very first time he preached there in Nazareth, remember these men were upset at him because he showed he condemned them, and they rushed him to the edge of the edge of the hill i've been there, some of you had in nazareth, and there's a great big drop off of whatever it is, thirty sixty feet right down below the rocks. Do you think it didn't enter the mind even remotely of Jesus? Well, I might knock a couple of heads together and get out of here. you know he had human nature, he had the idea of self-preservation. He had thoughts come to his mind that he'd say, no, not my will, but thine be done. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. He never sinned. He never gave in to it. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we've got to come boldly to God and to Christ, sitting at God's right hand, knowing God really understands. His son is sitting right there saying, Father, I went through that. It really is hard down there in the human flesh, (laughs) you know, and and you, you have to fight. And this poor guy, he's overcome with this human nature. And so God does understand in the person of Christ. And God, the Father, understands too, but, you know, you can't fully understand unless you've been there. And so God did that by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Fully in the human flesh. And that's a wonderful thing. And he's our merciful and faithful high priest. So, this is what this is all about. He was fully in the human flesh. And yet, while fully in the human flesh, with the pulls of the flesh, he kept all ten of God's commandments perfectly and showed it could be done. It could be done through the Spirit of God. You are of God, little children. And uh, uh, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you, Christ is in us, is greater than he who is in the world. That's Satan, the devil, the God of this world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, and he who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Those who are really being called of God and understand, they will hear. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is begotten of God, as it should be, and knows God. He's obviously talking about the human flesh here. So we've got to love one another. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's the main thing God is composed of. Love, kindness, warmth, affection, total outflowing concern. And that's hard for us to understand because none of us are like that yet. Yet, hopefully we're going in that direction through God's help and God's Spirit within us. God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him, through His sacrifice and through Him living His life in us. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God set us that example. So we, how much more should we love one another, knowing that we're precious in God's sight? Each one of you on this side is precious in God's sight. Each one of you on this side is precious in God's sight. See, we have to understand that. And love one another in spite of our human faults, knowing that we're in the image of God. Every human being of every background is made in God's image, and God loves them. So that's an important concept. No one has seen God at any time, verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. You see, Christ lives in us, Galatians 2.20, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him. By the way, I should comment back in Exodus 24, verse 10, just as a reference, Exodus 24, verse 10, you see that Moses, Aaron, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up on the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. They saw him. Is that contradicted here? No one has seen God at any time. No, because John is obviously in this context talking about God the Father and the God of Israel was the one who later emptied himself and became Jesus of Nazareth. So they did see God, but only in the person of Christ, not God the Father. You have to understand that. By this we know that we abide in Him, verse 13, and He in us. He lives His life in us with the Spirit, because He's given us of His Spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So again, brethren, how do we confess? Is this saying, "Oh, I believe in Jesus, so all of a sudden God... Dwells in you. That again is what the Protestants can jerk out of context, take it all by themselves, and say, just believe on Jesus and you're saved, and God lives in you. No, what what God, what Christ you have to ask, and you have to Luke, uh, use your reference here. For instance, Luke six, Luke six, verse forty six, where Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You see, Jesus is not your Lord if you don't obey him. So he's talking about real faith in Christ, not faith in a false Christ or partial faith in the true Christ or whatever. And again, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, speaks of another Jesus. Some people have faith in Christ, but it's the wrong Christ they confess. And verse 16, now, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. So God will live in us through the Spirit if we again walk with God and obey him, or willing to do what God says, not play word games, say, I love you, but I won't do what you say. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. You see, if we truly walk with God and obey God, we will have boldness. When Christ comes, we'll know that we have basically walked that way. And that will give us a great deal of confidence. Because as He is, so are we in this world. We'll be the light of the world. We will be obeying God. There is no fear in love. You see, if you have real love, you won't have fear. But perfect love casts out fear. And that's a wonderful verse. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. There are many examples to use of this, brethren. Many, many. One that just sort of hits me and I've used before, but I'll use it again. I hope it's effective to you. It has been to me. Whenever I read about, and it's not happened all the time, but sometimes they show a condemned man is being led into the gas chamber, or the electric chair to be executed. And right at the last minute, who's there with him? His mother. Everybody else is mad at him. He's, he's raped. He's robbed. He's killed. He's, he's just awful. Who still loves him? His mama. <laughs> she loves him to the end. She can't help it. Is she afraid of him? He's a dirty, rotten killer, rapist, bird. No, she doesn't fear him. She loves him. He could turn on her. His mind's perverted. But she loves him anyway. She knows he could kill him, kill her. I mean, most women, you know, they could figure that out. But she loves him so much she doesn't worry about it. She's there anyway. And she'll kiss him at the last minute and then he gets the juice or he gets the rope or he gets the whatever it is because she loves him to the end. That's a beautiful love. She has no fear. It's her baby. She still loves him. I think of the black man that was made uh, Justice Thomas, I think, was the one. And some of you black brethren may correct me. It may have been someone else. But I think when the Congress was interviewing him, And asking him questions and trying to pin him down because he was a little more uh, conservative, you know, than they wanted. And uh, he didn't trust these people and that people. He indicated, well, who do you trust? One of these smart Lake senators asked him. He said, I trust my mama. (laughs) I thought that was great. I trust my mama. (laughs) And my mama was like that to me. And she's still giving to me because every now and then my sister gives me something our mama has saved for us. And she's the guardian now. She's first I was. But then I got busy and gave her the the uh, guardianship or whatever they call it now. And mama's still helping us, you know, years and years after her death. And she loved us to the end. That's the way mothers are. And that's a beautiful part of God's love. When we're made God, we will have that beautiful love that mothers have and we will have the understanding and the wisdom and the power and the strength that a a, a right kind of a father has. Does not always have perfectly, but will have. And we'll have other wonderful things our mother had as well. All goes together in the character of God. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You've got to love your brother. Forgive him. Sure he makes mistakes. Get over it. Forgive him. How can you love God if you won't even forgive your brother? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. That's God's command. Chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ... The anointed one, I think you more know that, the word Christ literally means the anointed, the one who is filled with God's Spirit, the special one, anointed with the power of God, is begotten of God. Again, it ought to be begotten. You're not yet born of God, but if you really believe that in the right way, believe in the true Christ, that He is anointed, and so on, then you're begotten. And everyone who loves Him, who begot, that is, God the Father, Oh, you know, if they translate it as begot there, uh, the same Greek word, by the way, ganao, just different forms of the same word. Ganao comes from the word Genesis, you know, to, to, to bring into being, to generate, just different forms of the same word. Also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So we show love by keeping God's commandments. Notice chapter 5 verse 3. This is extremely important verse, just like first John three four. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. Here's another key verse, chapter five, verse three. For this is, see, gives you a direct definition. This is the love of God. What is what is the love? Oh we love one another, we're kind, we're sweet, yes. But how do we do that? According to our human imagination or whatever we feel good, we have... No, we'd better do it the way God tells us to do it. That we keep His commandments, plural, all ten of them. And His commandments are not burdensome. The Sabbath is not burdensome. They try to make the Sabbath, oh, that's a, that's a great yoke. And yet you understand, most of you, that Sabbath is probably the easiest to keep for many people. And in tomorrow's world, and for us who grew up the, and lived around Ambassador College, the Apartians and Mr. and Mrs. Ames and others who worked and lived there, once you're around there and were in that milieu, had a job there, and were around the students and others, that was the easiest commandment to keep. Everyone kept it. No threat of losing your job if you kept it. Yet all week long, every hour of every day, you can't kill, you can't even hate, you can't have the spirit of hate. You can't lust or certainly not commit adultery or fornication. You can't even have the attitude of that. You can't be coveting. You can't be lying or partially lying. White lies, black lies, they're all lying. Okay? You can't do any of those things all day long. Only one day. Only one day out of seven. What do you do? You rest. Ooh, that's hard. <laughs> you rest. And, of course, you go beyond that. You worship God. You serve Him on the Sabbath day. That's the easiest commandment to keep if the world were running right. It's not a yoke at all. His commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is be- born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Say, you've got to have faith in God. Trust Him. He'll guide you and you can overcome. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You've got to really believe that fully. This is he who came by water and blood. You see, the water of baptism and the blood he gave his life. He showed his example by being baptized. He did that to fulfill all righteousness. And the blood, of course, is the blood he shed on the cross. He paid for our sins. Jesus Christ, not only by water and blood, uh, by water, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. There are three who bear witness. And brethren, from this word witness, most of you have this in your margin, but if you don't, you can put a note and check it up later. Check me up on this. Prove all things. From the word witness, you should skip down to chapter, I mean to verse 8, where it says the Spirit. Because the words in between were not in the vast majority of the Greek text. They were stuck in there during the dark ages. They do not belong there. And yet, this is one of the big proof texts that the Trinitarians use to prove there's a Trinity. But it does not belong in the Bible. And my particular Bible, right down here at the bottom, a little tiny print, I didn't put it there, but it's printed there. The editors know. Well, they'll say here, if I have to take off my glasses and get up close, they say, uh, verse 7, "...in you uh, omit the words from in heaven through on earth." You see, so they omit all those words. Only verse 5, 4 or 5, uh, very late manuscripts contain these words in Greek. There are literally hundreds of manuscripts. But the major ones and the ones that are most reliable do not contain these words in between. So at Autoskip there are three who bear witness. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. There's no trinity. It's not talking about the Holy, that in that sense here. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he's testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe in God has made him a liar, because he's not believed the testimony God has given of his Son. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And the life is in his Son. That's very important. If you don't have, as he says here, the Son of God, you do not have life. Think about that. He who has the Son of God, verse 12, has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What do you mean have? It doesn't mean believe in or have some empty faith in. It means that you have Galatians 2.20. That's what it really means very clearly. You have Christ. Christ lives in you. He's your living Savior. Christ lives in me. And the life which I live will live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 You have Christ as your living Savior. Your dead Savior and your living Savior. And if you don't have him, then you don't have life. You've got to have Christ. Yes, Islam has certain right teachings. Confucianism has certain teachings that are helpful, I guess, in a human carnal sense. Maybe better than nothing, maybe better not. Sometimes they're just a counterfeit to confuse people, of course. And in that sense, I guess, the Hindus, the ideas of Brahma, Bhush, Vishnu and Shiva and their various things, they have to, I don't know, be sweet or be kind or do... But you don't know God. God fully revealed Himself through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And there's no other way to fully know God unless you know Christ. And you have Christ in you. You've got to understand that. Christianity only has that. True Christianity only has that. These things I've written to you who believe in the name, the authority, the power of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, you have it already. God's seed is in you. His very nature is in you. You have the presence of eternal life. you're not yet immortal, you can die but that seed, which is eternal, that's in you as long as you keep walking with God. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name, the authority of the Son of God. Now, this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You see, if we ask according to God's will, we've got to think what kind of prayers are taught in the Bible. What did Jesus ask for? What does God tell us about praying? What are the examples of David and Abraham and the men of God? And pray for those things. If we know that he hears us, so if we ask rightly, and if we follow First John 3, verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things pleasing in his sight. And if we have faith, another requirement, you've got to ask in faith, so if you follow those things and ask him the name, literally, of Christ, you get the answer. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have. We may not see it right now. God said to Abraham, I've made you a father of many nations. And Abraham could have been a smart, adult. they can look around, well, where are they, God? Are Big deal, where are they? You know, I've been smart. No, Abraham never saw those nations. He died, he still didn't see the nations. And years later, Isaac begat Jacob, and years later, Jacob begat the fathers, and he still didn't have powerful nations. They were just kids before Abraham ever saw nations. But so they gradually became nations, and then today they become mighty nations all over the earth. And our nation, the United States, and the British descended peoples of the former British Empire, the two greatest powers on earth at the time of the end, the sons of Abraham. So it happened, but Abraham never saw it. He had to do it, believe in faith. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. You see, you can sin various ways, and you can be forgiven if you repent. There are some sins, if you deliberately sin after you've been converted and know the truth, then you will not be forgiven. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say he should pray about that. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 10. And most of you know here what I'm going to read, but you do need to understand this aspect. For if we sin willfully, Hebrews 10, verse 26, if we sin willfully, deliberately, knowingly, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, we haven't just heard about it. Lots of people hear about it on the radio or television. But after we have received it, you've either been fully converted or you fully understand Some people are not fully converted, still could commit it, because they knowingly, deliberately just will not be converted. They knowingly resist. So if you sin, after you've received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, the lake of fire, which will devour the adversaries. So he makes that very clear. There is a sin leading to death. The unpardonable sin. I do not say he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is begotten of God, and brethren, here it is again, the Greek word ganao should be translated begotten, does not practice sin. Again, implied in the context, does not practice sin. He cannot regularly sin. Everybody sins, of course. You know that as long as we're in the human flesh, we sin. But whoever is begotten of God does not practice sin, uh, but he's been begotten of God, keeps himself. You see, you hold back from sin, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, if you're already born of God, this this verse wouldn't make any sense. You know what I mean? If you're actually born of God, you would be God. God is not bothered by whatever Satan does. <laughs> so it's talking about us humans who might be affected by that. Talking about us in this flesh. So you see the wording here. We're understanding that more fully the last few years. We know that we are God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world. Yes, there is a Satan, the devil, and he's got sway over this world. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Christ living in us. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All kinds of things. Your family can be your idol. Your money can be your idol. Your great physician can be your idol. Your own self-image in various ways can be your idol. All kinds of idols beside just a little hunk of rock. Keep yourselves from idols. Your false religion could be your idol. Don't insult my church. If your church is not God's church, you're in trouble. You know what I mean? People really get all buggy. That becomes their idol. Different ideas can become your idol. Little children. All of us have to have the attitude of little children to be teachable, to be humble. Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Second John. "...to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever." Notice, brethren, through this chapter how often he uses the word truth, truth, truth. As I've explained in the early days of this work in Ambassador College, we didn't talk to people when I came into the church because there wasn't much of a church around. We had less than 100 people between the three churches. There are only three congregations. About twenty people in Portland, thirty in Eugene, and thirty or forty when I first came to Pasadena. That's it. That's all we had. That's all she wrote. No other congregations. We talked about the truth when I came into the truth, and that's the main thing. People kept it worldwide. They said we're in the church. No, when the when the you know pillar uh, by day. And the shining uh, pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day moves. That's where God moves. That's what the truth is. And the church of God is where the truth is. And that's what you have to always understand. If I would die and, and people would take this work and take it away from the truth, you follow the truth. I don't think that'll ever happen. I really deeply mean that because we have such dedicated men. But I'm just saying to that in case that would ever happen. But uh, you have to understand that. Follow the truth. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. Notice whom he sends them blessings from. He sends them blessings from the two personalities in God. Who's left out continually? The Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's not, or it is not. It can be translated, he or he or it is not a a person. It's a spirit force, the essence of God. It's not a person. That's why it's always left out. I've rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Again, the truth. As we've received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you had from the beginning. Here again, go back to the beginning. What did Christ teach? He taught back in Matthew nineteen seventeen. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. He said back in Matthew 5, in verse 19, you know, uh, if I can get started on it, sometimes I can't start the quotation without looking at it, but after talking about he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, he said, verse 19, Matthew five nineteen, Sermon on the Mount, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them even the least of the commandments he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven all through the new testament you find keep the commandments the apostle paul said in 1 corinthians 7:19 neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything but keeping the commandments of god is what counts 1 corinthians 7:19 the new king james has it more correctly translated Nevertheless, the old King James shows the same. Yes, you've got to walk in the truth, and so he writes a commandment that you better go back to the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments, not just love to one another, plural. This is the commandment, again, that as you heard from the beginning, what did Christ teach? He taught by his teaching, by his example, by everything he stood for, that you're to keep God's commandments as a way of life. So as you go back to the beginning, you should walk in it. That's what Christianity is all about. Well, that's why we're getting back to first century Christianity, to do what Jesus actually did. It's not very complicated. Frankly, it's very simple. You just see, what did Jesus do and you do it? What did Jesus teach and you teach it? Not very complicated. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ coming. And the New King James has it better, brethren, and as it does in many places. Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They do not confess, and it's a present participle or the present continuous tense. In other words, Jesus is coming. Yes, he did come. 1900 years ago or nearly 2000 in the flesh. He will come later as king of kings. He is coming now. How is he coming now? Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you. You see, through the Holy Spirit, if you yield to God. Christ lives his life in us. That's how he's coming. And the world does not understand that. Because they don't want to admit that you can have the power of God to keep the commandments, all of them, in this life, in this flesh. That blows their whole argument against grace. We're all under grace. We're not under the law. We just accept Jesus and we go to heaven. That blows the whole thing. Christ is coming in the flesh. Anyone who does not teach that, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. That's what Jesus makes very plain here through his favorite disciple. Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Those things we work for? Oh, you're not supposed to work or just be under grace. How come John does this terrible thing and writes about works? But he does. <laughs> he does. And he's the last one he wrote. He got in the last word, didn't he? Progressive revelation. You still keep the commandments and you still have Works. Whoever transgresses does not abide in just the faith, the grace of Jesus? No. Whoever does, uh, transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine. It's a matter of the teaching. You don't believe on Jesus' name, that is the false Jesus, the little Lord Jesus away in a manger at Christmas time. No. You believe in the teaching of the true Christ of the Bible. That's what you've got to believe in. The doctrine of Christ does not have God. Good men who talk about sweet Jesus, yes, they're blind too. They don't understand. God has not called them yet. We don't hate them. We should not look down on them, but they are blind nevertheless. They don't understand the doctrine of Christ. They talk about a different Christ, a different God, a whole different plan of con- of salvation. They don't get it. He who do- who abides in the doctrine, the teaching of Christ, has both the Father and the Son. How come he doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Well, he does have the Holy Spirit, but when, Jesus, when Paul or Peter or James or John here is talking about the two persons, or about the persons, I should say, in the family of God, they always leave out the Holy Spirit. See, another proof. Indirectly, the Holy Spirit is not one of the persons in the family of God. He's not mentioned over and over. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. He comes in the name of sweet Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you can't meet with your relatives that are not in the church or neighbors, but you know what I mean, and be friendly. But he comes and brings not this doctrine. In other words, don't receive a Jehovah's Witness in your home to argue with you. Don't let someone else come in with a false doctrine. That's what it's saying. For he who greets and shares in his evil deeds, having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full." So he wanted to tell them more in person. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. So all through these books, he talks about going back to the beginning. What did Jesus of Nazareth really teach? Keep the commandments. Have Christ living in you. Teach the doctrine of Christ. Follow the teaching. Doctrine simply means teaching. That's all it means. Follow the teaching of Christ. Don't believe in a false teaching about a false Christ. Even though they use the name of Christ, that proves nothing. A counterfeiter doesn't come along and start waving some, uh, uh, you know, bill that's green. He wouldn't wear, a, wave a pink polka dot bill and say, uh, here's this pink, you got to... No, he waves something that looks very real. And he'll wave it and say, look, this, this is real and it looks very real. Now, you don't know whether I'm holding up a counterfeit or not, do you? You assume that this is a $20 bill. It might not be. You assume that because it looks like a $20 bill. But you've got to be careful. Prove all things and hold fast that which is true, or that which is good. First Thessalonians 5:21. As it turns out, it is real. But uh, I do have $20 here, so it's all right. Don't <laughs> knock me in the head. I don't have any $100 bills, though. So you've got to understand that. Okay, let's go on to Third John. I kind of had to hurry here a little bit so we finish up, but I want to finish up on time. Third John, the last letter that John wrote, the oldest apostle still living. Does he do away? Here's his last chance to do away with God's law. <laughs> well, he doesn't do it, of course. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. See, God wants us to prosper. He wants us to have good things and be in health. But that doesn't mean he makes us millionaires. And as we get older, we'll have little creaks. You remember how Isaac was blinded and Jacob came in and and, uh, fooled him and said, I'm Esau and wore these things on his uh, arms. And as I get older, you get little creaks and... Bumps and weird things. <laughs> and some of you know what I mean. In fact, too many of you know what I mean. <laughs> a lot of gray hairs here. So, he wants us to be in health overall. And God does want us to be blessed. And he will give us eternal life with an absolutely perfect body and glorious health. And will inherit the universe in a few years if we hang in there. For I've rejoiced greatly, when, uh, brethren, uh, when, I, uh, when brethren came and testified of the truth so here it is again, near the end of his life, brethren, when you understand church history, the apostasy was already beginning. So John begins to talk more about the truth, the truth. Where is the truth? Because the truth was being watered down, and the and many other false prophets that Paul warned them about back in Acts chapter 20. He said that, I know that after my departing evil men, Will will sneak in among you, teaching grievous things and draw away men after them. And that began to happen. So you had to think about, where is the truth? Even though men came into the professing body of Christ, they did not always teach the truth. So he goes ahead here then. Uh, I, I, I'm glad, to, and they testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Yes, the truth, the truth. Where is the truth? Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who've borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you'll do well. In other words, help out these ministers traveling around. And at that time, they were often cut off. They couldn't be wired money from headquarters or anything like that. They had to have help. Take care of them because they went forth for his name's sake taking nothing for the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. One of the translations said co-workers for the truth. Mr. Armstrong found the word co-workers two or three places in various translations of the New Testament and that's what we call our people today you know who send us money regularly yet are not in the church. Co-workers. They're co-workers for the truth. I wrote to the church as there was a church. But Diotrephes, here's this bad guy, he was the leader of the apostasy, at least in that area at that time. Now, maybe Simon Magus was still alive and the biggest and the worstest of all, we don't know. But Diotrephes was very prominent as a heretic. Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Here was the last of the old faithful apostles taught directly by Christ. And this smart aleck came along, as we've had smart alecks come along in the former association we were in, and they rejected those of us who tried to follow the apostle, who follow what we taught, and kicked us out. We went through the same thing exactly, exactly the same thing all over again. He loves to have the preeminence. Somehow he got in control, just like this other man did recently in our time, and he does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, putting them down, and not content with that. He himself does not be- receive the brethren. He would not receive the true brethren. Let them stay in the church. And forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. If there was a church, people were disfellowship from the church, for consorting with or being fellowshipping with those who were hanging on to the truth. Those who held on to the teachings of Christ and the original apostles were in trouble. And the true church of God was gradually stamped out of the majority, at least, of so-called Christians. And they had to hide out and become the little flock scattered all through various valleys and caves and places around the Roman Empire. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God. And frankly, again, here it is. Uh, He who practices good is of God. He who practices evil has not seen God. If it meant just do it once in a while, some of you do evil once in a while, you'll maybe break the Sabbath. Does that mean you've not seen God? No, because you did evil. No, it talks about a way of life. You see, who does. He who practices evil has not seen God. Demetrius has good testimony from all and from the truth To the very end, John writes about the truth. So important. And we know we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. True, true in the truth. I have many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Paul hoped to come and see this man, I mean John did, and see this man in person. But you'll notice something here. At the end of 3 John, as happened only three times in all the 14 epistles in the New Testament, no amen. 1 John closes with amen. 2 John closes with amen. All the books close with amen, except 3 John, which may need to be continued later on, where then later God will inspire a continuation of what happened After the time of Paul and some of his his disciples, I mean John and his disciples, you know, uh, who carried on. And then under the Polesians and under the Petrobrusians and the Waldensians and on down to the uh, Sardis people who carried on over into this past century. And into the time of Herbert and Loma Armstrong who were raised up in the Willamette Valley in Oregon and began the next to the last era of God's church. And on down to our time. God may have a brief summary of some of that at the end of this book later on. He has no amen at the end of the book of James either, which is talking about to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And that may be added to, you see, to show where those tribes went and where something happened and so on. Interesting how those things uh, are to be worked out. Well, anyway, uh, that's the end of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, I hope you've been given a good overview, that you've taken notes. You can go back and see how these verses really ought to be understood. And the truth is much plainer when you understand it. So we're to live by every word of God. And I hope you understand this part of the word of God more, more fully from now on.